Hey, everyone. Hi. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Alice. Hey, Reza- now. Greg, what are you doing here? Hey, what do you mean? What I- Allison, where did you, you come from, Greg? I came from the world of childish, and I just want to make sure that your listeners know that you're just as wonderful on the, on the other podcast you do. What if they don't have kids? Don't need them. You don't need them. A lot of our listeners actually tell us they don't have kids. We talk about sex. We talk about all sorts of dirty stuff, but also parenting stuff. Yeah, so. Check out Childish, new episodes every Wednesday, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey everyone, hi, hello, welcome to another episode of Alice and Rosen is your new best friend. I am extremely excited to bring in my guest, but first I must chat with producer and bad boy of podcasting, Tony Thaxton, to see what's new hey, in his me. life, <laughs> fill him in on what's going on in my life. Hello, Tony, how's it going? It's going all right, you know, just uh, another another week. I know. That's, that's about all I got, nothing, nothing, too, nothing too thrilling, but you know, we're getting... The weeks are zipping by. They really are. Like, uh, yeah, this feels like this year started, and we're almost to July. And How about we- that? How about that? <laughs> I'm bringing the goods today, Alex. You, wow, Tony, I don't know where to begin with these hot takes. Um, listen, there's been some, uh, some talk, some chatter about my presentation on YouTube as you know, youtube.com slash Allison Rosen, uh, yes. where you can go to see the cringy, cheesy aspects of my show. Uh, I shared on the show last week that there was discussion that perhaps a more sleek and modern aesthetic would suit me well. And I don't even disagree with it, but something has come to my attention. Most shows like mine, they don't play the whole theme song on the YouTube version of the show. So I'm thinking I might begin to make it more verite. You know, it okay. just might start, it just might start out of like, you just turn it on and then, oh, there we are mid conversation. And then maybe just like a little bit of the theme song will just zip across the screen and then boom, no more of that, you know, frippery because we are about what's real. Yeah. I think that's how I'm going to yeah. do it. I don't uh, know. Yeah, I'd been, I'd been wondering and uh, if, uh, if you, uh, at any point had regretted not having some sort of, uh, I don't know, some sort of like, animated intro or something you know just something so it's not uh us sitting there while the theme song plays no if anything i regret having any sort of graphics or anything because that's that's out tony that's (laughs) done it's done so they don't say that anymore but anyway listen tony our guest today is known for his investigative work and I was thinking that I also should be known for my investigative work because in addition to my years as an actual journalist, you know, I've chronicled the problem of millipedes in my bathroom. As you well know, it is mm-hmm. number one in terms of topics that I bring up on the show. And ever since I moved the plant that I began to suspect was the problem after spending hundreds of dollars to have an exterminator come by who did nothing uh move the plant out guess how many millipedes there have been since then because we're now on like a couple weeks of the plant being out of there i'm I'm gonna guess zero 
Big fat goose egg, zero. Nice. Sounds like you did it. People should, you know, this started like a year and a half ago when I handled what could have been a termite problem myself. I'm telling you, I don't think I would ever want to do it, but I think I have the makings of like a pretty good exterminator or someone <laughs> who could host a show such as To Catch a Millipede. <laughs> I, 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 I support, you know, I'm, I'm here to support. So but, go right ahead. But... And if you follow my just very exciting Twitter feed, you might already know this. Guess what I found in my bathroom the other night? Oh, I did not see this. What did yeah. I miss? A fucking slug just suctioned. Oh, they're or, back. I don't, it's just, I, this is like the what, fourth or fifth slug I've found in a number of months. But why are <laughs> slugs in my bathroom? And it was they, just stuck under the, the counter. They know the millipedes are gone. They're like, she needs something to talk about. So. Like, Whatever the Twitter for insects is, I think I'm a topic of conversation on it. <laughs> My sure, address yeah. is on. There's like a redfin for, for insects. My address is on there. Pictures. They know. <laughs> they know that whereas once I would uh, massacre them, now I just pick them up and move them outside because I got shamed by our guest, Bean. Yeah. Bean Baxter. So they know that I'm like an ally, even though I don't want to be. You know what? Enough of this. Because I could talk <laughs> forever about this. But more importantly, we have someone waiting to join the show. You know, we usually interview silly, unserious, light people. No offense to all of those. We've actually had some grade A guests. But this is a grade A plus. Real journalist who has accomplished stuff he is an investigative reporter he has won i read eight emmys but then i heard him say 10 emmys so he is one i'm gonna go with what he says he's won 10 emmys you know his voice you know his work he was a reporter with nbc for 22 years he hosted so many seasons of to catch a predator that he is has entered into the lexicon and the pop and in our pop culture and just our sense of of right and wrong, I'm going to say. Since then, he's gone on to host similar offshoots or like, well, we'll get into what they, there's a number of shows that are sort of, they're similar that he's done. He now hosts a podcast and a YouTube show called Have a Seat with Chris Hansen. Put your hands together for Chris Hansen. Chris Hansen, hello. Allison, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you very much. Are you intimidated by my millipede investiga <laughs> investi investigative work? Because do you feel like you're sitting but across from the, a pier? Here's the question. Do slugs eat millipedes? Maybe that's what happened. Oh, maybe they came to the bathroom looking for a hot meal. <laughs> they might. Or maybe millipedes eat slugs. I don't know. I feel like both slugs and millipedes are under the category of like the good kind of insect, but I don't well, the slugs you can catch because they're slow. The millipedes are quick and they're they dash around and they are fast. They're surprisingly the fast. Drain. I think when they go down the drain you run the water, they're gone, but they actually they can lurk back up, I think, where a slug you can deal with. Right. Well the, see with the millipedes, I was picking them up and then carrying them outside. And right. so there's a question of like, did I move eight to 10 millipedes outside or just one really persistent millipede who kept coming back? They find their way in. It's, it's shocking. You know, it's in, in here in New York City, the apartment, I don't see a lot of uh, intruders that way. But in Michigan, we live near water. And it's hard to 
you know, seal it all up. So you do see a couple of sneaky spiders now and again. And uh, we have a, a bugzooka. Ever see one of those? Yes, we have one actually. <laughs> oh, those are pretty neat. So the idea with a bugzooka, not a sponsor, but the idea with the bugzooka is that it's supposed to humanely capture the bug in like the, the end of the tube and then you can move it outside. However, Tell me if this is your experience, Chris. I find that it pretty much maims the bug when it sucks it into the tube. I've not seen a meaning of an insect precisely, but I, I do have a hard time lining it up and making sure you get the bug right away. Yeah. I, think, I think it needs more suction maybe, but you're not supposed to store it cocked. I know that. Oh, really? So when you do that, I think some of the other family members might be not as, you know, fastidious about the storing process. So I think our suction might be weak on the bug zapper. So we may have to go to a different sort of insect weapon, if you will. I'm going to need to shame my husband <laughs> because I don't, I think he's been storing it loaded. There and you go. I've got two little kids. That's dangerous. They could get sucked <laughs> up in that thing. Or you forget to empty the bug chamber. Ugh, that is my fear. <laughs> Chris, you have dealt with some really unsavory characters and unsavory insects, which are worse? The characters are way worse uh, because they prey on children. Now, insects maybe do the same thing, but not in this kind of way. You know, when we started the Predator franchise, Allison, 17 years ago, I had no idea, one, the extent of the issue, the problem, two, whether or not we'd catch anybody, and three, that it would go on this long and still be an issue. I mean, we've been out recently in the past couple of months with more investigations and guys continue to show up. And I honestly thought in the beginning, we do it once or twice and everybody said, oh, this is bad. We can't do this anymore. We'll get caught. Well, police do it. Federal agents do it. We do it. And it's more prevalent than ever. And part of it is there are more platforms upon which predators can approach children. When we started, we had decoys from perverted justice in chat rooms at AOL and Yahoo. That was it. That's all we used. Well, today, I mean, imagine how many platforms are out there, the kick and all the TikTok and the interactive games and everything. There are more places than ever before. It's hard to keep up with. I mean, every time we do an investigation or we talk about planning a new one, there is a different platform with which I'm not familiar. Does, like, pedophilia is something that is really not, on my personal radar that much, except that I do have, <clears throat> uh, I have two young children. So I think once you have kids, you sort of have to, you know, it's, it's in the back of your mind always. But at the same time, like when the Epstein stuff was coming to light, I was just, I felt like, oh my God, I, I tend to live in a, and with the Harvey Weinstein stuff, all of that, just the, how widespread these kind of crimes are. I felt like I have been a bit naive. Someone like you, I would think you it is it has been in your face so much. Does that affect how you view everyone? Well, I, I think you have to compartmentalize it a little bit. I mean, you know, people ask occasionally, you know, have you ever had therapy because of all the investigative work and being overseas and human trafficking and all the different things I've done over the years? And the answer is no, I probably could use it. I think everybody could. But, you know, I, I have a way of just keeping it, you know, buried and, and, and sealed up and, and, and coping with that and knowing that 
you know, by digging into it and doing these stories and creating an awareness that perhaps didn't exist before and a dialogue that didn't exist before. That's how I cope with it and deal with it. And interestingly enough, part of uh, what I found uh, therapeutic almost is doing the podcast, Predators I've Caught, because we go back into these past cases and I dig deep into what was going on at the time, what my interaction was with this guy, as well as what has happened to him and with him since he surfaced in one of our investigations. And it's, it's really, it's an interesting experience. I think people are starting to, to really engage with it because they want to know what's happened to these guys. And, and, you know, there's a whole community that follows this very, very closely. And I also think it's, it's another way to take viewers, which is what I try and do in all these shows, on this journey of discovery and show them things they wouldn't normally see and, you know, let them hear things they wouldn't normally hear. And, and that's, that's what we do. And when you can do that, when you get into the mind of a criminal, a predator, if you will, and hear the voice of a victim or a survivor, then I think you can prevent other people from becoming victims. And that's a big part of what we do on all these different platforms. So the podcast is Have a Seat with Chris Hansen. Oh, no, sorry. Predators I've Caught. I literally just made a note to myself to, (laughs) I just, I I was like, don't say this. And then I said exactly what I did not mean to say. Okay. So the podcast is Predators I've Caught. The YouTube show is Have a Seat with Chris Hansen. Is that also a podcast? That's uh, a YouTube channel right now where we do a lot of different investigations into, you know, sometimes predatory behavior. We delved into the Onision case, who's a YouTuber who was kind of like the Jeffrey Epstein of YouTube. And that actually turned into a a series on Discovery Plus, a television series on Discovery Plus. So sometimes these stories, these different investigations that we start on the YouTube channel, you know, grow into television. Some mm-hmm. are, you know, perfect for the YouTube platform. And so, that, you know, we, we do things there. I mean, it started, honestly, Allison, with just wanting to have a, a piece of real estate in the YouTube space. I had no idea when we started that we would get onto a couple of these stories that really resonated with people. And you wake up one day with, you know, 360,000 subscribers and 22 million views. And it's now something that, you know, it's an entity. It's something mm-hmm. I have to feed and, and think about and, you know, do stories for. So it's been an interesting experience. It's different than television. Um, it's allowed us to, you know, turn on two switches and be live, whether it's to cover the pandemic, which we did for a number of episodes or the George Floyd situation or, or anything else that pops mm-hmm. up. So it's great for that. And it's also great to hit another audience. Uh, another demographic that will then follow me into other projects and other, you know, television projects. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I watched some, so I had not heard of Onision, um, but now I'm a little more familiar. I watched what? some of your interview with the Canadian pop star Shiloh, Shiloh. who performs Perfect. as Lyle Doll? Doll? She has another Lil Doll. Lil Doll. Lil, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My attempts at being young and hip and Canadian are not working. Um, Lil, she performs as Lil Doll. I mean, such a like well-spoken, captivating. Um, she's so talented, you know, yeah. it, both in the music field. I mean, she's got an amazing talent. I mean, you're talking about somebody who, you know, when she was younger, had Justin Bieber open for her. You know, that's how right. popular she was in Canada at the time. And then, you know, her career got sidetracked largely because of Gregory James Jackson, a.k.a. Onision. And you look at these videos and what he did to her, this disturbing 
what level of, 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 of abuse. And he's done this to other women. And, and, and you know, we interview uh, a number of them on the YouTube channel. And we, again, talk to them in the in the Discovery Plus series, Onision in Real Life. In fact, one of the victims, Sarah, uh, is in the fourth episode that just recently came out a few weeks ago on uh, Discovery Plus. And it's, it's amazing to me that YouTube allowed him to get away with this for so long. What was he and doing? He was, it started out with goofy videos. He, he did a video that made Tosh Point. Right. The banana old, song, right? The banana song. Right. And so that got traction and he was one of the first guys, um, in the YouTube space. And those early guys were provided with toolkits and ways to monetize and make money. And YouTube was making money. So they got in early and they did very well. They made millions and millions of dollars. But along the way, the mission for them at least got twisted. And there was abuse and questions about inappropriate contact with underage fans and, and uh, young survivors started to come forward. And, you know, you go to try to talk to YouTube on this and they, they don't want to address it. I mean, they'll put the CEO, Susan Wojcicki, out to talk about, you know, the happiness of YouTube. But when it comes down to sitting down with me or a serious journalist, very rarely do they do that. And they wouldn't in this case. And it wasn't until we actually, in part three of the series on Discovery Plus, took the YouTube, you know, cartoon, the terms of service, you know, good touch, bad touch type thing, and transposed it with what Onision was doing on his mm -hmm. channel, that it became so obvious, so blatant, so atrocious, uh, so vile, that finally the next day or a few days afterwards, YouTube demonetized him, which is, you know, you might as well pull the plug on somebody like that who, you know, relies yeah. on that as a, as a, as a revenue. Right. Yeah. I think he also got booted off of Patreon. So he's been. Well, what does that tell you? If you get booted off of Patreon, right? What does that say about YouTube? Now, right. YouTube starts to we see them now starting to take you know action quicker against you know some of the predatory behavior. This EDP four four five, which is a, a story we did on uh, the YouTube channel just this week. But you know, the, all kinds of it's, it, you look at it. It's like how can you allow this to go on? I mean, I listen. Nobody will fight for the First Amendment harder than I will. You know, I've been doing this 40 years, but there's there are certain things that are just abusive, so, yeah, bullying and predatory. That's my question. What was Onision doing to these girls and his spouse is involved in it, too, right? Kai, yeah, in, in, it's different levels of, of responsibility with different young women. Some of it was just luring them online mm -hmm. at an early age and having them send pictures back and forth, either between the spouse, Kai, or between Onision, and questions of whether or not that's the transmission of child pornography or inappropriate conversations. And, and he chooses vulnerable mm -hmm. targets, right? So it's, it's the most vulnerable who may st have started following him because his message resonated with young women going through a difficult time, either with an right. eating disorder or loneliness or, you know, any sort of thing. And that's who, you know, Kai and Onision, you know, drew in. And in some cases had some of these young women travel out to their home in suburban uh, Tacoma, Washington. In one case, even uh, convinced a girl who was 15, 16 at the time, to convince her mother to sign guardianship rights to Jeez. Greg Jackson and to Kai. 
And she went out there to live. Now, they twist this in a bizarre, unbelievable way to claim that this girl raped or sexually assaulted them. I mean, just all kinds of bizarre stuff. And then what they would do is, because they had two young children, they would get these young women invested in caring for the children and the emotional well-being of the children. So they, they, these girls would become so worried about backing away or reporting them or going to police or any of the authorities. And, and, and so, you know, they made for perfect victims for Kai and, and Onision. Oh, right. Didn't he have a two-year-old that fell out well, of the, the second and it, story? And, yeah. But the kid so, was returned to him. Amazingly, because if you look at it, now I'm a parent and my kids are much older. My parents, my kids are adults now, but you know, your kids are younger and you know darn well that under normal circumstances with both parents home, a two-year-old should not be able to fall out of a second story window. Correct. Landing in the driveway and almost dying while the father, Greg Jackson, is texting inappropriate sexually charged messages to an underage fan. And what does he do? He doesn't administer assistance right away. He takes a video. Oh, my God. I didn't know that. If you go through the police reports, it's all there. So, you know, they've been skirting law enforcement uh, for a long time. And there's an investigation going on both at the federal level and the the local level. And, you know, this all comes in the shadow of a pandemic and – you know, massive fires and snowstorms and, you know, uh, protests and everything that can happen in a small community in Washington state to not allow investigators to take on cases like this has happened over the last year. And we wouldn't know half of this stuff had we not gone out there yeah, and knocked on his door right. and asked him for an interview. What does he do? He calls 911. Yeah, this is a big man now who wants to, you know, show off and act so tough and say this about me and that and create a misinformation campaign. Wouldn't even open the door. I heard the 911 call. Were you able to get those tapes? Oh, yeah. We used them on the YouTube channel. We use them in the in the series that's on Discovery Plus right now. And we they're 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 fascinating because it takes you into the mind of who this guy is. And and like most predators, he is nothing but a coward. And that's why he picks on the victims. He does. It's kind of incredible because he's talking to 911 and he says there's a guy who has been stalking him <laughs> yeah. and that guy is knocking on his door. Yeah. Um, it's a guy from the stalker. internet. Yeah, YouTube stalker. <laughs> and then the woman says, like, who is it? And he goes, well, it's Chris Hansen. <laughs> <laughs> so the 911 tape, is that public record? Like, how do you get it? Oh, yeah. That? No, yeah. We, we, we got it. I mean, we, you, you file for it, you get it. And again, we used it on the YouTube channel and we used it in the, in the series on Discovery Plus, as I mentioned. But, you know, it, I, when, I, when the sheriff's deputies arrived, you know, we, we left the property. We, you know, I do these things by the book. I've been doing this a long time. I'm in the internet world where nobody does reporting unless it's, you know, online from their basement. Reporters, real reporters, go on planes or drive in cars. They go to locations. They knock on doors. They ask questions. They do stuff Mm -hmm. that I do. The whole YouTube generation doesn't do that. If they can't make money, not all of them, but many of them, if they can't make money from their basement uh, or or looking up something on the internet, they don't do it. You know, they they don't. They can't deal with the real world. Some of these uh, content creators. So we went out there, and you know, we got off the property and the sheriff's deputies arrived to respond to the 911 call. He called a second time and 
the operator exasperated says, well, they're on their way. And I went up and I introduced myself and the guy, the deputy says to me, we wondered how long it was going to take for you to come out here, <laughs> you know, as if, you know, they sort of knew that there was bad stuff going on inside that house. And I explained the situation and, you know, we continued our investigation and we got all the documents, but that, that day led to the release of dozens and dozens of pages of documents relating to other events that took place at the house, other calls from potential victims in the infamous, you know, case of the child falling out of the second story window. How do you feel about, this is a big sweeping question, get ready. How do you feel about law enforcement? I have had overwhelmingly positive relationships with law enforcement over 40 years. Now, some will say, well, that's because, you know, you get stories from law enforcement. You have access uh, from law enforcement. And that's partially true. As a young reporter in Detroit, I did obviously socialize with uh, the narcotics division and, and I gained their trust, which allowed me to go on raids with them, which allowed me to expose to people who weren't intimately familiar with the crack cocaine trade in the mid to late 80s. And so you walk a fine line. You know, I wouldn't uh, turn my head away if I saw police abusing their power or authority. I would go harder on somebody who did. I, like everybody else in America, was just absolutely repulsed and uh, horrified by what happened uh, to George Floyd. Um, But at the same time, what you've seen, especially here in New York City, is a swing back to, you know, police have to police. And you can't have New York City uh, with the current crime that goes on here. And I think one of the reasons Eric Adams, the mayoral candidate, did so well in the Democratic primary is because he was on the force for 22 years. He understands what Comstat is. He understands what... Jack Maple and Bill Bratton did in the early years of the Giuliani administration. Now, Giuliani is, you know, off on his own weird, bizarre circus right now. (laughs) Yeah, there was a time where he was respected. There was a time during 9-11 and prior to that. And I moved here. I took the job at NBC in 1993 when you wouldn't leave the office without your sport coat on because you didn't want uh, thieves to know which pocket your wallet was in. Mm -hmm. And in a few short years, my then young sons could run around Rockefeller Plaza and Times Square and Mm -hmm. not be bothered too much. And so there is a difference. Eric Adams knows that. Eric Adams also knows that, you know, you have to respect people. You know, you have to have police who are smart. There has to be diversity in the 36,000 officers who patrol the 8 million people who live here. And it's a monster. But you, you, nobody wants to see, you know, the crime that is going on right now and the shootings and the, the illegal guns. And, and part of this all comes with the pandemic when you couldn't get a court date. So unless you did something horrific, You're you know, released. you were given a desk ticket and released. And, and so what, what Adams is saying is, look, we have to crack down on the people who are committing lesser crimes at six, seven o'clock in the evening, and we prevent the more serious felony uh, at 11 or 12 at night. And, and I think people are understanding that. And that's why he, you know, got 10 or 12% more of the vote than his next competitor. 
Mm -hmm. So how do you see your role versus law enforcement? Because I'm, and- Well, it's two totally different things. You know, I, I, I have a sense of how to investigate something. I have, you know, been blessed with wonderful sources and, and uh, because of our work uh, in a lot of different areas. But, you know, truthfully, the Predator uh, franchise has, you know, opened a lot of doors. So if, if I, you know, land uh, in a small town anywhere in America and whether it's a Predator story or a breaking news story or a tornado, I mean, I'm going to get access because people know it's, it's Chris Hansen. And they know that they can trust me. Have the cops ever said to you, hold off because we are on top of this already and you might bring attention in a way we don't want, et cetera? I think that there have been, I know there have been instances over the years where, you know, for the sake of justice and uh, the success of investigation, I have held off on something for a period of time, not forever, not because they didn't want to be embarrassed by anything. I've never done that, never been asked to do it, mm -hmm. actually. Um, I mean, nobody's ever asked me to hold off on a story for that reason, but yeah, I have over the years uh, and y that's the responsible thing to do. You know, I got heat when we did the predator investigation the first time with law enforcement doing a, uh, parallel investigation because there were some in journalism who thought that I was working too closely with police. And honestly, after we did the first two investigations, I think it was socially irresponsible to do it without law enforcement involved. I mean, even though law enforcement made some cases based upon our show. Oh, are you talking about how the f the first two episodes, the, there were no arrests? We did our own. Yeah. Well, there were, that's yeah. not true. There were arrests. There were arrests after the case. There weren't arrests once they left my kitchen. Got it. There were arrests down the road and, and you know, only one in the first uh, investigation, but the second one we did outside Washington, D.C. and Virginia. Mm -hmm. Fairfax police made a number of arrests. The FBI arrested the rabbi. So it started there. And then, then in the third one, we worked in uh, with the Riverside County Sheriff's Department in California, and 51 guys showed up, and 51 guys got prosecuted. And I thought, you know, from, from a social responsibility aspect, that was the only way to do it. And quite honestly, as a television producer, it was unfulfilling for viewers to watch these people leave twirling an umbrella, walking down the street, going off about their business after I just, you know, busted their chops for trying to rape a 12, 13 or 14 year old kid. But you said you got heat, heat for it, for working with law for enforcement. Working closely Why? with law enforcement, but it, it was, you know, it was a false argument. Was, but, was, but what is the argument? Well, the argument is that journalism should be journalism and mm -hmm. law enforcement should be law enforcement and they shouldn't work together. And I understand that, but we put together a system of doing it where we had an ethical wall. We weren't acting as an agent of law enforcement. Law enforcement wasn't acting as a tool of the media. And I was satisfied. The lawyers were satisfied. And, and a lot of you know people weighed in on it to make sure it was done right. Mm -hmm. And that was the template that continues to be used today. So I want to ask you, law, there's law enforcement, journalism, and then entertainment. I want to ask you about that. But first, I want to talk about my favorite healthy snacks. I told you this was going to come out of nowhere. But I'm, the, I'm the queen of segues, Chris. You didn't know. I mean, you're sitting across from a peer in terms of investigations. Yeah. But also, my segues are unparalleled. Listen, you guys, healthy snacks 
like the people that Chris Hansen uh, shows on his shows have a bad reputation. But let's be honest, most don't taste very good. They don't fill you up and they certainly don't satisfy your cravings. This episode is sponsored by Monk Pack, who makes snacks that taste like our favorite sugary treat, but with one gram of sugar or less. Monk Pack Keto Nut and Seed Bars contain one gram of sugar or less, two to three grams of net carbs, and they're only 150 calories. They're great for anyone following a keto lifestyle and the perfect snack for anyone who is trying to eat better or cut back on sugar and carbs without sacrificing taste. Okay, so we had only two bars left. I ate that. I ate one last night. I ate one the night before. And then I got on the computer and I just ordered more because I can't live without them. I ordered the nut and seed bars in um, white chocolate macadamia nut because, but there were so many other choices. There was a variety pack, but it didn't have that, I, that variety in them. And then I ordered the variety pack of the granola bars because those are so good too. They're all so good. And in the words of my husband, Daniel, who's on a recent episode, oftentimes snacks that are this low in sugar and good for a keto lifestyle are quote unquote gnarly. These are actually delicious. <laughs> <laughs> They're a perfect quick snack to satisfy your sweet tooth without guilt. Try it for yourself and you'll see. And we have a special deal just for you guys. Get 20% off your first purchase of any Monk Pack product by visiting monkpack.com and entering our code best friend at checkout. And Monk Pack is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% satisfaction guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll exchange the product or refund your money, whichever you prefer. To get started, just go to monkpack.com dot com. That's monkpack, M-U-N-K-P-A-C-K.com and select any product. Then enter code BESTFRIEND at checkout to save 20% off your purchase. Monkpack, delicious, nutritious food you can count on. We thank them for sponsoring the podcast. Okay, Chris Hansen, I'm back to grilling you. Um, so yeah, the question of like, how do you see entertainment fitting into all of this? And I will make a more specific question. Um, the crime that the people on To Catch a Predator committed is solicita- is soliciting sex with a minor, right? So by the time they show up on the show, they have actually already committed the crime? In most states, yeah. Uh, the crime is the solicitation online, sometimes depending on what they bring with them and what is on their phones and other, you know, uh, potential charges can be added once they arrive. But but you're right. The solicitation to have sex with a minor takes place online. What we do is, you know, the confrontation. It takes us inside their mind, if you will. It helps us to understand why they came here. And yes, some of the interviews are very entertaining for, for I think, good reasons, because people want to know. Now, there have been some, you know, undeniable, undeniably you know, humorous moments that have come out of it, you know, um, and some iconic moments that have come out of it. Um, but, you know, that's just part of what I try to do with the interview. I mean, anybody can jump out of the back room or the bushes and create 10 seconds of dramatic video. What I try to do is engage with the person, whether it's a predator story or anything else, and get them to, to tell me the story, to, 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 to break them down into saying, okay, this is why I'm here and this is what's going on and to be truthful. And it, it's a, it's a long and twisty road to get there sometimes, but along the way, there's no doubt that it has created some entertaining television. And so it is this mixture of powerful taking people inside the crime, the 
skillful or my attempt at being skillful in the interrogation and just these characters. I mean, some of them have become, you know, they, they have followings on their own. I mean, it's, it's, That's weird. it's stunning, really. Do you find, has it been illuminating to try to get into their mind? And also, is it pretty samey? Oh, it's, it's, it's very uh, unseemly. It's, uh, it's disturbing. It's, I mean, some of the things that these guys have told me over the years, I mean, the cleanest, best pleasure would be to, you know, have sexual relations with somebody who's underage. Um, the people I kept talking to on the internet stayed, you know, got younger and I got older. Um, the, the details of what they say they want to do mm-hmm. to this child. And again, the, the whole excuse that, well, it was a decoy. It really wasn't, uh, an, a, you know, a, a 12 or 13 or 14 year old. That's BS because people do, uh, law enforcement does undercover stings all the time. As long as you knew or thought that this was a child, it's a crime. And I always say to people, people ask, you know, don't you ever feel sorry for some of these guys? I said, yeah, for a minute. And then I realized what could happen if we weren't there mm-hmm. and a 12 or 13 or 14 year old girl was there. And that would be something that would alter that child's life forever. Just like uh, transmitting uh, pornographic pictures to a child or transmitting pictures of a child in a pornographic situation. Those are life altering incidents. I saw an interview with you where, um, so there was like a, a famous episode or a famous, I don't know if it aired. It was a famous situation where one of the predators committed suicide mm-hmm. and you said that you, you sleep well at night. Has there ever been either metaphorically or like literally, has there ever been something that has gotten in the way of you sleeping well in, in the course of all the work you've done? Well, I, I, there are a lot of haunting things, you know, and yeah, some of the things keep you awake at night. When you go undercover into a brothel in Svepak, Cambodia, 11 kilometers outside of Phnom Penh, and you watch pimps sell five and six-year-old girls for oh. sex for 30 to $60 to Americans and uh, Western Europeans, that's going to keep you up at night. When you go back four years later and interview some of the 37 girls that got saved that you profiled in the story, and, and you, even though you know the communication is difficult, my Khmer is not, not that great, but you, they know you had something to do with it. Mm-hmm. And a lot of other people did. An NGO was, was most responsible along with some law enforcement authorities over there. But they, they, you have this connection with somebody whose life is better because of it. Yeah, it's emotional. It, it, it gets at you. I mean, you can't forget what we saw in those uh, brothels or in the factories in India or in the, you know, drug testing labs where, you know, human beings are used improperly. I mean, you see a lot of stuff. You see crime here in this city, in New York City. You see a lot of things. But, you know, at some point you have to realize, okay, I've done my job. I've exposed this. I've created awareness. I've created a dialogue. I've gotten law enforcement to really make this an issue. And more important, in some cases, gotten politicians uh, motivated to fund the effort or to change laws or to try to prevent this from happening. Look, at the end of the day, when you talk about 
predators uh, going after children online. You know, we talk about the drug problem. You talk about demand reduction, you know, treatment. Well, we don't have a lot of treatment for predator-like behavior or pedophilia. It's not a glamorous aspect of medicine. Hmm. You know, you have the choice of graduating from medical school and getting a uh, going into co- you know a cosmetic surgeon uh, practice on Park Avenue here, or you're going to go spend your life in federal prisons interviewing the dregs of society. Thank God there are people who do that because it's illuminating and it helps us to understand that crime, that particular criminal, and guard against it. But at the end of the day, it's about creating awareness. It's about a discussion, and you have to protect your children. And when I was growing up. You know, it was common to say, don't talk to strangers. Well, that was good advice back then in the olden days, and it's good advice today. But the problem is the person who is a stranger on a Wednesday in a conversation during an online interactive video game is not a stranger by Friday because they're so adept at grooming. Mm-hmm. And they, they, you watch it. You watch it in real time when you, when you do one of these investigations. And so you got to talk to your kids at, the, uh, at an age-appropriate time and say, Look, there are adults out there who want to trick you, and kids don't like to be tricked. And as kids get older, you have to elevate the conversation. Kids don't share everything with their parents. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the most telling things, Allison, was early on in the predator investigations, we took some of the video of the confrontations, and we showed it to a group of a dozen middle schoolers. And many of them thought the guys were actors, that we put the show together just to just to scare them. Oh, like a reenactment. Like a reenactment. Or and when I told them this really happened, and these were real men who were going after real children in their minds, that got their attention. Mm-hmm. Have you ever? Has there ever been uh, a female predator that's that you've come across? Not in our investigations. I wrote a book a few years back, several years back on, on the whole predator experience. And, and there was one case in there that we profiled, but we have not seen it. And the therapists, the psychi- psychiatrists who we talked to about these things say that generally speaking, the female predator doesn't like the anonymity. You're more likely to mm-hmm. see the scenario of a teacher and a student that we've seen play on the headlines over the years. When it comes to Male predators, they like the anonymity and it is, it's an extension of the, you know, the 24 hour access and the, um, you know, the, the addictive nature of the internet. And, and, you know, there, I think there are three different groups of guys who commit these crimes and, you know, one's the younger group, you know, who could probably be put on probation, monitored, registered as a sex offender for some period of time and never do it again. Mm -hmm. There's the hardcore heavy hitter guys who'd be doing this with or without the internet, just bad guys lock them up forever. And then there's this group in the middle who has a, maybe a predisposition and attraction to younger girls and they wouldn't act on it, but for the mm. addictive nature of the internet, the anonymity, you know, guys start saying things online that they wouldn't say face to face and then they become acceptable. And then this addictive quality takes over. And, and the next thing you know, they blur the line between fantasy and reality and they're knocking on our door. Do you make a distinction between some of the stuff that's more in the realm of oh, so like someone who's you know grooming a 15 16 year old and someone who is talking to a I don't I don't even know how young to go much younger Well typically in our investigations we we have decoys who pose as 12 13 and 14 year old girls 
uh, 15 and 16, depending on where you are, and the age of the actual predator could be illegal as well. So we try to make the cases so clear cut, mm-hmm. you know, f- for the purposes of showing, you know, what evil is out there. Right. I mean, right. Would, would I do a story on a 17-year-old who is already dating a 15 or 16-year-old in high school? No. Would I do a story on a 19-year-old who is trying to uh, have a sexual liaison with a 12-year-old? Yes. People say, well, he's only 19. I said, well, what's the difference between a 19-year-old and a 29-year-old in terms of the danger to that child? Right. There is no danger. Now, this guy may deserve a a second chance because he's younger if the court finds that or if the probation officers one day figure that out. But the danger is the same from a 19-year-old to to, to, – it's not a Romeo and Juliet issue at Mm -hmm. that point, I don't think. Right. For some reason, I want to say, like, what do you think of, like, a 19 and a 16-year-old? But I don't know why I'm trying to, like, na- drill, well, drill down it, into it. it, it I guess because there's something there's, arbitrary. I think if there's, if, there's, if there's a pre-existing relationship between two high schoolers who are two years apart, then I don't think it's my business, mm-hmm. you know, unless there's some harm coming to one of the parties. But if it's a stranger who's an adult male who's going after a minor female, that's illegal. And that falls into the into the, the category of being a predator. Mm-hmm. And depending on the age and everything else, perhaps a pedophile as well. Right. Uh, you mentioned the just horrible stuff you saw at a brothel. Where did, when, when, where did that air? We aired that on Dateline. I think the first episode, the first hour was in 2004. And then uh, we went back about four years later. So I think it was 08 or 09 when we went back and did a follow up on it. So what draws you or is there something you think that draws you to this dark content? Well, I think it's rewarding to correct a problem that takes place, a crime that takes place, to expose a crime that takes place in the shadows, in the darkness. You know, a lot of this reporting, it's not easy. It is expensive. It's often dangerous. And I guess, you know, I always say it was easy. Everybody could do it. And Mm -hmm. it's not. And it's the challenge of it to me to expose something like that, to do something different, to do something out of the box, to do something that nobody else can do. And, and I've been blessed. You know, I don't want to take credit for all this stuff because I've been blessed with superb producers and um, bosses and support staff and camera people and sound people. And I mean, you, you can't have a better team for 40 years from local news in Lansing all the way up the ladder to you know, where I am today and be a solitary guy. You know, that's that's not how it works. But you do learn a lot along the way and you learn not only what's important to you as a journalist, but also what is important to the people who count on you and trust you and who want to listen. And again, it's it's about, it's this journey of discovery. I, I truly believe that at least for me in this business, and it's taking people to places they wouldn't normally get to see and hearing things and seeing things they wouldn't normally get to hear and see. And I think that for me is the interesting part of it. You know, I have no problem with somebody doing a cooking show. I might do one one day. We don't know, but it's still, you know, it drives me to go find out something that somebody else, that no one else knows and and do my book report on it. You know, Do you remember, 
uh, this is, I'm going on a fishing expedition with this question. Was there anything when you were growing up, do you remember like your first, first huge disillusionment or something? Was there an experience where an adult disappointed you? Something like that? Not really. I mean, I got into the business. I became interested in the business at a very young age because I lived in suburban Detroit, not far away from where Jimmy Hoffa had his last lunch mm-hmm. alive. And I used to ride my bike up to the Red Fox restaurant where he was last seen. And the police were there and the FBI was there and the local reporters, and the, ultimately the network reporters. And, and there are people who were involved in the investigation who actually were neighbors in our subdivision. And, and so I, I followed this thing closely as a 15-year-old kid, 14, 15-year-old kid. And, and um, you know, sort of got bit by the bug then. And so when I went off to Michigan State University, I just, you know, Went over and signed up for the campus radio news network one day, and, and I was off off to the races after mm-hmm. that. But I, I, there was nothing that you know. I was never a victim of a crime or anything like that. But what I can tell you is, on numerous occasions, dozens and dozens and dozens of occasions over the years, I've been out socially at a dinner or you know with some buddies at a pub or something, and and people will come up to me and say, "Can I talk to you for a minute?" I say, "Sure," you know, and I tuck away with them in a corner and and they'll confide in me that they had been sexually assaulted, molested, abused by somebody and thank me for, you know, the predator series and the other, you know, stories we've done over the years involving this. And that's when, you know, you given somebody a voice and that makes me feel good. Yeah, I bet. Um, I saw, I watched something where you said um, something about how there's this question of shaming in enterprise journalism. And I had to look up enterprise journalism, uh, which actually I, I, back in my day, I had written some stories that I think would qualify as enterprise journalism, but I wasn't familiar with that term. But can you explain a little bit what, what you meant by this question of shaming in enterprise journalism and define it? Well, I think shaming is, a criticism that I've faced in terms of the predator investigations that, you know, are we putting decoys out there who are luring men to do something they wouldn't normally do and then shaming them by putting them on television? I, I don't agree with that. Um, I don't think anybody who loves that criticism is very well thought uh uh, of or or um, has put much intellectual integrity into the question. Um, in terms of enterprise reporting, I I tend to use that term because in my mind, investigative reporting, and, and I do both, I suppose. But you know, investigative reporting, I think of guys who do you know two stories a year, and they you know use the computers and and dig up records, and you know that's it, it's all very important. But sometimes it's just as important and impactful to take a topic and to figure out how to infiltrate it, you know, and expose what's going on in an enterprising way using, you know, techniques that, again, bring people inside the story and take them on this journey of discovery. And, and that's it's – a, it's a thinly veiled distinction between the two because it is, I mean, investigative reporting. Mm. Um, but it's – it's, I think enterprise reporting maybe is a more accurate term for what I do sometimes. How do you feel about how you're regarded? Because I could, um, I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but I could imagine 
given some of the criticism that has been leveled against you, I could imagine feeling like, but what I'm doing is righteous and what a thankless job it is sometimes. No, I, I feel that people truly appreciate it. Um, I, I get it when I walk down the street here in New York or whether I'm in Detroit or in Los Angeles. I, I think people truly appreciate the effort that goes into it. And I never feel thankless about it. I think people understand what I do and I think people appreciate what I do. And I think people are, you know, educated and entertained by what I do. So I don't, I don't feel that way at all. Do you, how do you feel about NBC not bringing the show back? Well, I think that a lot was going into that. I mean, you know, I think um, we had done a number of investigations. I think they had become very expensive for a lot of different reasons um, because there had been competition to take some of the personnel away to go to other networks because mm -hmm. everybody wanted to be, you know, to have something similar. And I think the decision was made at some level that, you know, we can expand this material um, put it on the cable network MSNBC and, and get a lot of mileage out of it without producing new episodes. Mm -hmm. And so they continued, you know, for a decade or more to, to recut this and use it and, and without having to shoot other episodes. And I think there was also feeling at the time, and, and, and I felt this way a little bit too, that, you know, it was good for me to do some other stories, um, some different kinds of things. And again, you know, clearly, I'm best known in a very wide demographic uh, array of viewers for the predator stories. But, you know, it's literally five, six, seven, eight percent of my portfolio. I mean, every Emmy of one has been for something else. Um, so it's, 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 you know, I thought it was important to do some other stories and work on some other projects. And I think the network thought that as well. Um, Inquirer, like, set up a sting, right? And, you know what, do you not want to go there? It's a 10-year-old tabloid story that was mostly false. Um, they, they printed some pictures of you with a romance with someone who was of age. And my reaction was... This is totally different because I, I feel like they were trying to say, like, look, you're in, you know, ensnared is sort of like what you do to people. And it's 100 percent different. It was totally different. I think we know in hindsight what the National Enquirer is capable of doing. And, and uh, I don't give them any credibility whatsoever. Yeah. I mean, again, it's a 10 year old tabloid story. That but you're saying it was false. I'm saying that it was a 10 year old tabloid story that, you know, was riddled with inaccuracies. And I think when you look at historically, and especially what we know today about the National Enquirer is that, you know, they'll gin up just anything they want to gin up. Mm -hmm. And they can make things look a lot of different ways. And that's what they do. Um, okay, let's take so, so uh, I have some questions from listeners. Mm -hmm. um, let's go ahead and do that. I take them on Patreon, patreon.com slash Allison Rosen, and also on Twitter, twitter.com slash Allison Rosen. Okay, Layla C. Rollins Cohen wants to know, 
Uh, Catch a Predator was one of my favorite shows of all time. I want to know how he managed to keep calm when reading chat transcripts to these monsters. Well, to be honest, there's so much going on in that situation. You're focused on what the guy is doing. And even though we have security inside the house and we have people, the law enforcement is nearby and around the house, you're watching their hands, you're watching their body movement, you're trying to figure out, okay, where do I go with this interview? How do I you know, get into this guy's head a little bit. And sometimes the chat logs are a way of getting them to open up. And sometimes it's just so egregious and shows intent. Uh, it's almost unbelievable it, it, to, to even say that stuff and know that it might be on television. It's like, oh my God. And, and you know, because when we use those transcripts, I mean, we want to let people know what these guys are all about, right? Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you don't want to offend people who are trying to watch the show. So we walk a fine line. You know, I'm not just responsible to the standards people at the network. Uh, you know, my kids' friends' parents are going to see this, mm -hmm. you know, and, and uh, you know, my relatives are going to see it. And so we do get racy with them, clearly, uh, but it's for a reason. You know, it's not, I don't think it's gratuitous. Mm -hmm. But you do, I mean, you're just reading them and try to, you know, edit in your head so you can say something that is, you know, you can actually put on television. <laughs> uh, I think, you know, years of doing it, you sort of figure out a way to keep your poise about it all. Uh, does your heart race or back Sometimes. in the day? Yeah. I mean, the first time, the first investigation we did, it went from driving out there and having a little bit of fear that nobody was going to show up, that I just wasted tens of thousands of dollars of the network's money to set this up. And what if nobody shows? And, you know, with that, my producer, Lynn Keller, called and said, we've got two guys scheduled to show up in 45 minutes. Where the hell are you? Traffic cleared and I got there. So, yeah, the first guy comes in and it's a lot going on. And I've done a lot of, you know, what I call spontaneous interviews where you walk up on somebody who's not expecting to be interviewed. And any number of things can happen, but this was this was something. And yes, uh, my heart was in my throat for sure. Layla also wants to know what's the craziest excuse someone has ever used to why they found themselves at a home meeting an underage person. Parentheses: the school bus driver who got caught twice was always a favorite at our house. John Canelli, Special Guy Twenty Nine. In fact, he is the episode of Predators I've Caught that's out as we have this conversation. Um. All the excuses are, you know, it's a hundred way type of first as to what's exotic. <laughs> I mean, Canelli, the guy who walked in naked, <clears throat> claimed that he thought I was the father of the child, the boy he was there to see. He said, well, your son, I am me. I said, well, you know, that is wrong on so many different levels. But, <laughs> you know, the, uh, the, the classic one, and I let the guys run down the road with it because it's so absurd, is that, well, I was concerned about her well-being. And because her parents weren't here and she was home alone, I just came over here to check on her. Oh, my God. I said, are you kidding me? But I've heard that over and over again, yeah. Jessica Rodriguez. My friend's brother is part of what seems to be an online community for fans of Predator Lauren Armstrong from the show. Is that that's not the one you mentioned earlier, is it? No, no, this is another. We haven't done a podcast on Lauren yet. We will. Lauren surfaced in our investigation in Kentucky near Bowling Green, and he had 
this speech pattern where instead of saying, oh, God, it came out, oh, God, like C-A-W-D. It's from the Northeast. And I remember him coming in, and his chat log was literally like a phone book. I mean, he went on, he was very prolific, and this and that. And, and so we had this long conversation, and his speech pattern was such that it got um, a lot of attention. And there's a group called the Church of Cod, who <laughs> follows the post-predator arrest antics of Lauren. And he's been in and out of prison after violating probation. And, and you know, I think he's been in more times more time for probation violation than actually committing the predatory act. He'd driven a four or five hours to meet this girl. And I have reached out to him a couple times. And every time I have to do an interview, he's either been in back in prison or he hasn't gotten back to me. And then I got a voicemail just within the last two weeks from somebody claiming that they're Lauren. Why don't you call me back? I said, why don't you leave a number? Yeah. You know? And I will call you back because I, I think it'd be an interesting show to have him on. But yeah, there's a whole community of people who follow Lauren Armstrong. Are these um, former predators or current, whatever the terminology is, how do they feel usually about being re-interviewed by you? You know, I really haven't done many re-interviews, if any. I can't think of any that I've done. I've, I've offered some people the opportunity. I will continue to do so. I think now that some time has passed on these earlier investigations, I'm hoping, because I think it would be interesting, that some of these guys will talk. Mm -hmm. I've interviewed family members of some. We had the daughter of a predator who surfaced in Riverside, California, come on and was a very compelling interview, you know, talking about the collateral damage, which I think is a, is something we don't report on enough. It's it's not just this guy getting busted and embarrassed mm -hmm. and exposed. It's the family who, in most cases, had no idea that their dad or their husband or their boyfriend or fiance was involved in this sort of activity. How how do they have no idea? Well, these guys come from all walks of life. I mean, we've seen doctors on the cutting edge of curing cancer. We've seen, you know, guys from law enforcement. We've seen teachers. Uh, we've seen people from all walks of life. And, and the reality, Allison, is that most of these guys, now there's some creepy looking guys have walked in, you know, but most of these guys don't stand out of a crowd. They could be standing next to you at the grocery store on a Saturday morning. I mean, they, they look like regular guys. You don't know. Mm. who's doing this activity. And that's the frightening part about it. Yeah. Um, okay. Another question. Don Ambrosio says, has he lost some faith in humanity given he's seen some of the worst aspects of it? Does he think pedophiles can be rehabilitated? Well, I think there's, when you talk about a pedophile, it's a, there's a very specific psychiatric definition, Right. And when you talk about a predator, it's slightly different. It's a larger catch-all phrase for this horrifying activity. Pedophile being someone who... Pedophile is somebody who specifically targets prepubescent children. Okay. Basically. Oh, and you chose people right on that border. The, I mean, the actors were, were portraying borderline. Right. We, we did what was illegal versus what is a psychiatric designation. Interesting. So it's, it's not necessarily... I mean, it's, it's illegal to be a pedophile, but it's not 
you know, it, it, it's based upon the age versus the physical description, which is what the psychiatric right. um, definition is. It's all bad. It's all illegal. And it all should be punished and in some cases treated. Is there a way to treat it? I think for a certain segment of that population, yes. But we don't know which ones. And that's the frustrating thing. I mean, in this country, we want easy solutions. Lock them up. Yeah. Give them a drug or get them into therapy. And, and the truth is, it's a combination of things for some guys. And for some guys, nothing will fix them. If it's a young guy who is on a borderline expedition, who's socially inept, who's trying to coax a girl into a relationship, figuring she'll be old enough one day to make this legit, that guy can probably be helped. But the, the other two categories, I have doubts. Does it make me cynical of humanity? I, you know, Every time I see the worst thing in the world, I see the best thing the next day. So it, it cancels each other out, I suppose. What to you is the best thing? Well, when you see people come together in tragedy, whether it's, you know, what we're seeing down in uh, Florida with this horrible situation with the condominium collapse, or you see what happens on 9-11 or in Oklahoma City, you see the best in people, you see the best in America, you see the, the, the bravery that exists in this country and the tenacity and the grit of, of getting through something. Um, and there's nothing that gets us down. Ultimately, you know, we move through it. We grieve and then we harden our defenses and, and we go to the next level. And, and to me, that's inspiring. Um, what do you make of the popularity of true crime now? Cause I feel like back when you were doing predator there, it wasn't as huge an industry as it has become. Well, I think it's, again, you know, I was just at CrimeCon in Austin, Texas a few weeks ago and presented on my own and then with a law enforcement officer from the Midwest who, you know, does these kinds of investigations. And and I think, again, people like to be armchair detectives. Uh, they like to have a role, an active role in this. And the vast majority of Americans of the world population doesn't commit crime. So there's a curiosity, a genuine curiosity as to um, what makes somebody do this? What makes somebody think they can get away with it? And explain this to me and take me inside this investigation, this case. And I think when you do those things, you know, people are fascinated by it. I don't think it's a genre that's going away. I mean, I'm, I think people look, their entire networks, I had a you know, um, you know, the, a lot of what's on Discovery Plus is, is crime investigative stuff. The, the whole story, the other series that's out there now, and Peter Nygaard, the fashion mogul who was accused of you know, sexually assaulting, you know, thousands of women over 50 years. Um, you know, people want to know how you get away with that. Not because they want to do it. They want to know, you know, they want people held accountable. Mm -hmm. And finally, uh, between the reporting we did and, and other entities – in the United States and Canada, in a law enforcement investigation, he is being held accountable after 50 years of just outrageous, horrifying, criminal, predatory behavior on a lot of different levels. Um, so to go to go back to something you were saying just a moment ago about the difference between a pedophile and a predator um, and the decision to have the people from perverted justice posing as 12, 13, 14 um, was there ever a discussion of them posing as someone younger? 
I don't remember an actual discussion of anybody posing uh, younger than 12, 11 or 12. I think, you know, we may have had a situation where it, the decoy might have been a little bit younger, but generally speaking, those are, that's the area where the criminals choose their victims. And so if you're going to set up a sting operation. Oh, right. Like a, like a, is what you're saying a pedophile is not going to be trying to find their, well, very a, creepy a child, a child too young wouldn't be in a chat room. Got so it. it wouldn't Got be, it. you know, there, there's now there are predators, pedophiles, child pornography manufacturers who do horrifying things to very young children. I mean, the crimes exist, but it's not something that you would necessarily find in a sting where you would have an active decoy because obviously that target that victim would be too young to have this interaction so you you wouldn't be able to do it that way now you could and law enforcement has done this a lot when in terms of child pornography investigations you pose as somebody who's looking for it or who manufactures it and you do a sting now that becomes problematic for journalists to do because at some point you would then possess child pornography which mm. is a crime in and of itself so you get into an area where yes it's important yes it's uh, an ongoing criminal activity, but it's that's something that's better for law enforcement to do just from a sheer practicality standpoint. But outside of the logistics practicality, is that some is that the kind of thing you like? Are you drawn to bringing those guys down? They're horrible people, and 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 you know, you we did a YouTube show a few months ago on a lawsuit that uh, the woman a woman filed on behalf of her son, who's was tricked into sending pictures that constituted child pornography and Twitter uh, wouldn't act on it. Mm. Said it didn't violate its terms of service. And it took months and months and months to get those down in the course of which thousands of people viewed those images and every viewing of that image is a repeated victimization of that child. What kind of uh, parent were you when your kids were growing up? You know, I was on the stricter edge of the spectrum, you know, just because of all the stuff I, I saw. I mean, you know, they had a very, um, you know, protected environment and lived in suburbia and went to good schools and um, had good parents. And, and uh, you know, so, you know, besides the usual dust ups that boys get into, uh, kids get into, uh, nothing, nothing alarming. But, mm. um you know, I was on the stricter side of it. I mean, when we did, you know, look, I, you know, I, I have a job that takes a lot of my time. So, you know, you'd be away or doing some something or working long hours. So I always try to make up with it by, you know, skiing with the boys or doing, you know, activities and, and things. Um, and, and I think they had a good childhood. I think they had a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. And for the most part, you know, they were pretty protected from danger. But I think part of that is because, you know, you're keeping an eye out for them as well. And, yeah. Like all parents do, really. Do you believe in the death penalty? You know, that's a good question. <clears throat> and uh, I ponder it once in a while. Uh, and I'm torn, honestly, between somebody who commits a crime that egregious, wanting them to suffer every day in prison for the rest of their life and, and live that horror, as opposed to be, in some cases, mercifully taken out of this world. Now, I understand vengeance. I understand an eye for an eye. I get all that. And I'm not saying, you know, I, I wouldn't want somebody who 
victimized a family member of mine in that way to to not you know face the death penalty. I just I just wonder which is the true justice, and yeah. I can't give you an answer for that because I haven't made up my own mind on it. Yeah, my yeah, I, my personal feeling, I I get wanting to see that person killed. I yeah, so do I. I mean, and, for that. and by the way, you know, when I was a reporter in Florida. They still had, you know, the press pool watching the electrocutions yeah. in old Sparky up in Stark at the prison up there. So you, you, you know, you could potentially, as a reporter, get your name chosen out of a hat, and you would, or a lottery, and you would be one of the witnesses of the execution. Have, did you ever do that? I did not, but um, you know, it. it uh, I came close. We drove all the way up there once, and didn't did they stay the execution? But um, would you have wanted to see that? I would have done it. For for the reportorial experience mm-hmm. of doing it, yeah, yeah. Like I, I get the I get the desire for vengeance. At the same time, I don't. I'm personally not in favor of it. Um, just because I think there's just too, it, it's so final, and there's too too many times it's the wrong person. That's what makes me uncomfortable. Well, it it, it is. I mean, you know, you don't have to do that many stories on wrongful convictions to see the potential for that, right? I think certain states are known for more speedily executing, you know, um, their death row inmates than others. Um, so I, I think it's certainly something you have to make sure you're right on. And, and again, I, I sometimes think it's a better punishment to have to live that life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I heard you on Andrew Schultz's podcast and you were talking about being aware of what was going on with Jeffrey Epstein. Um, but not, having not being the one to break that story the Miami Herald did and you said that that was one of your uh biggest journalistic regrets do are, do you have other journalistic regrets you know i've i've obviously had situations that i thought well i could have jumped on this earlier been involved in this earlier but i, I think the epstein one you know sticks out just because when i was meeting with the people who were in the know i tried to make it a sting operation. You know, I tried to do it like we do the predator investigations and some of the other stings that we've done. And it was just impossible to do it for a lot of different reasons, security for, you know, Epstein's place. And it just was hard to penetrate. And and there were other factors too, but it, the story I tell is important because it, it, it talks about the day to day digging and reporting and staying with the story, even though it doesn't look like it's going to go anywhere initially. And that's what the Miami Herald did to its credit. Those reporters down there continued to stay on it. Uh, they continued to, you know, talk to the survivors, the victims and gain their confidence and get them to tell the stories. And incrementally that grew into a big base of evidence and encouraged them to come forward. And the U.S. attorney at the time, when Epstein was in, indicted and arrested, even said, without the Miami Herald, we may not have had this prosecution. So, you know, it, it's an example of how you can't always, you know, nothing's easy at that level. You know, it wasn't easy to do the Peter Nygaard story. There were mm-hmm. days that uh, it was like, uh, you know, waging a 3D game of chess just to get all the people to do what you needed them to do, you know? And, and at that level, at our level, it's not just telling the story and printing it. It's making TV out of it, yeah. which adds an extra element of, 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 uh, of challenge to it. Mm-hmm. So, 
you know, it really is, you know, some of these things are years in the making. Nygaard was, you know, really two years in the making. And and we weren't the only ones reporting on it. The New York Times was on it. The Canadian Broadcasting Company was on it. A lot of people were working on it. But finally, we pulled it all together. Last question. Uh, are, are these creepy people in your dreams? <laughs> you know, surprisingly not. Um, when I'm done with it, I mean, I do revisit it all the time for journalistic reasons and, and in speeches and telling stories and, and all that. But I, I don't. I don't relive any of the predator situations in my dreams. Mm. I just don't that I can recall. What do you dream about? All kinds of good stuff. I'm not telling. <laughs> 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 nothing, nothing that, nothing that, uh, nothing that fancy. I love it. Your real life is filled with like all sorts of dramatic stuff. So therefore your dreams should just be like the most mundane. Oh, exactly. exactly. <laughs> Um, Chris Hansen, it was so nice talking to you. Thank well, you for Allison, coming on the show. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Thanks for uh, your time and good luck with everything you got going on. And I appreciate it. Thank you. Listen, everyone, if you like what you're hearing, please leave us a review, five stars. It helps people find the show. Make sure you are uh, subscribed or following wherever you listen to Allison Rosen as your new best friend. Um, again, I'm on Patreon, Allison Rosen. No, excuse me, patreon.com slash Allison Rosen. Weekly bonus episodes, Zoom parties. There's a level where you can text me and I'll text you back. So much access. You'll beg me to leave you alone. <laughs> uh, and lots of other super fun stuff. So, oh, and if you... I forgot to mention, if you subscribe for a year, you get two months free. So that's 12 months for the price of 10. You can't afford not to. I'm also on Cameo and uh, shop my selection of stuff uh, on Amazon. So Amazon.com slash shop slash Allison Rosen. Amazon.com slash shop slash Allison Rosen. I've got all these different lists and you can like shop my podcasting equipment, makeup, beauty stuff, home stuff. I've got stuff for kids candles, etc. Amazon.com slash shop slash Allison Rosen. All right, Chris Hansen, tell everyone uh, where they can find you, what they should look out for, etc. Two series, Onision in Real Life and Unseemly, the Peter Nygaard investigation on Discovery Plus right now, working on some other shows as well, a new Predator series that we'll be able to announce in not too many weeks, I think. We're on YouTube at Have a Seat with Chris Hansen. And we are podcasting Predators I've Caught with Chris Hansen on Apple, Spotify, and every other podcast platform. At Chris Hansen on Twitter, official Chris Hansen on Instagram. Wonderful. Tony, what about you? I am just at Tony Thaxton on Twitter and Instagram and my podcast, Bizarre Albums, every Tuesday. Perfect. Uh, Listeners, thank you so much for listening. I love you. You matter. Goodbye. Hey, do you know and Rosen Show We had a good time But now we gotta go